It's Wednesday, and that means another episode of Home Court Press with McCade Pearson and Brian Priest. Today we're talking about the Lakers title, LeBron James and his place in history as he secures his fourth championship with three different teams and fourth NBA Finals MVP and the overall success of the bubble. Then we'll make our first true foray into free agency and how abnormal this offseason is shaping up to be. With only six teams having true cap space, the trade marketplace is shaping up to be as crazy as we've ever seen. We'll also talk briefly about the Jazz free agents Jordan Clarkson and Emmanuel Moutier. But first, we tip our caps and salute the NBA employees that made the bubble work. Stay tuned as all that and more are coming up next on Home Court Press. Welcome into Home Court Press. This is Brian Priest, your host, and joined as always by McCade Pearson. McCade, how you doing today? We're doing good. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about the return of basketball, and now we've enjoyed it all, and now it's over again, which means we're back to, I don't want to say filling time, because I love the offseason, <laughs> but uh, we're definitely in a different part of the calendar year. I think it's the calendar. I think because of the uncertainty of the uh, uncertainty of the off season, I'm no longer able to speak English. First of all, and <laughs> secondly, it's still going to be filling time, man, because we might be doing this for three months. I'm okay with that. I like the off season too. Hopefully, our listeners do. Yeah, well, we need to get basketball back. We can talk about that later. We'll get basketball back. I'm sure we're going to have a conversation about that. But let's let's get started. So. Obviously, conversation of the week. The Lakers win their 17th title. If you're a Celtics fan, maybe you think they're winning their 12th title. I I don't care one way or the other. To, to me, it's 17 banners in L.A. So, I mean, good on the Lakers. But I don't want to talk about that to start. What I want to talk well, about. As you kid. said, 12 titles in L.A. The Minneapolis ones, are we counting those? Then they had one before the NBA even started that Lakers fans are trying to argue is their 18th title so they have more than Celtics. No. And it's all messed up numbers because they won one in the mid-40s before the NBA formed in like a local rec league or something. Yeah. So I'm just saying choose whatever number you want, but they're in the mid-teens. I won't count that 18th one, but I, I'm really not going to argue about this. the five in Minneapolis. Again, I just can't speak English today. We're having problems. Let's let's just start talking about Adam Silver, the NBA. First off, it, hats off to to Silver and the way he put together this bubble. Zero positive tests from the time that people entered the bubble to the time that they left. There were guys obviously that tested positive before the bubble came in later, but I you really couldn't ask for anything more than what they got out there in Orlando. And to say thank you, I also really like this. Sham Sharanya first reported this on Twitter. But Adam Silver announced that he's he's going to give a $1,000 bonus to each of the NBA employees that were working in the bubble for the last three months, three to four months. And they're going to get several different days off. I believe it was four Fridays through October 30th. And then the entire week of Thanksgiving they'll have off. So I, I don't know if that's enough for the amount of time and work that these people put in. But it, it's awfully great recognition, you know. Anytime you you work a job that can be kind of thankless at times, to get that recognition from your boss and especially have it trumpeted across the Twitter universe like this is, that's got to feel pretty good, right? No, yeah, and as they did a great job, and everyone deserves that recognition. Um, as you said, days off, they're going to enjoy the offseason a little bit to the league offices, just like the players are. One thing nobody's really talked about, great job getting the eight <laughs> – the elite eight teams, the, their local markets to have about a two-week bubble for practices. 
you know, Clay Thompson returned to practice. All the uh, Tim Wolves had a great practice. Without Carl Anthony Towns, he was off doing some stuff. But it did a great job with all 30 teams in their given situations. Yeah, they really went out of their way to create as inviting of an environment as possible. And, yeah, I, I like that, that they got those eight teams that weren't involved in the bubble, were able to get them together so they could practice a little bit and get some time on the court because with so much uncertainty going into next year, and you're looking at some teams having 10, 11, 12 months off, and so to get them on the court and together with their coaches, I think is is something that could easily be overlooked, but Adam Silver and the NBA worked to avoid those types of things, and it's just been... It's been really impressive to watch, and, and I think that before the bubble started, I would have said Adam Silver's the best commissioner in professional sports. Now I I think it's clear there's not even an argument at this point. Dozens and dozens of podcasts all summer. Even we had this conversation, and it was always, when there's a positive case, what happens? Because it's ine- inevitable there's going to be a positive case. And we were just flat out wrong. There's no other way around yep. it. There wasn't one. Great job. Great season. Um, in terms of the Lakers championship, I don't understand the whole social justice Kobe died COVID stuff. There was still one champion out of 30 teams. And on the other hand, there was nothing wrong with this championship. It was just as legitimate as other. There was one champion out of 30 teams. Congrats to the Lakers. Yeah, I, I think you've got to give congratulations to the Lakers, even as Jazz fans. And we are, are born into hating the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sure you're very much like me on that note. But... <laughs> Yeah, this this title is different than any other NBA title, but it's no less exceptional than any of the previous champions in NBA history. You know, we mentioned the Lakers winning that 17th, LeBron getting his fourth title on his third team with four Finals MVPs. It, do, what does this do to the goat conversation in your mind? You've been more of a, a the younger generation, so growing up watching LeBron, I I was able to catch the the last. 10 years or so of Michael Jordan's career and really be aware of that. I, where does LeBron sit in that GOAT conversation? Uh, that's a great question. And it's funny. If you really want to get into this, we can't open this can of words because I did a lot of research into it last summer, really during the last dance and over the past six to 12 months. Personally, I have a weird outlook. I look at primes, not longevity. And I also don't think a title changes anything. A, a championship in my opinion, is the effect, not the cause. When that buzzer rang the other night, it didn't make LeBron any better of a basketball player. It was the effect of how good of a basketball player he was. And so I don't necessarily look at these accolades and think, okay, well, now he's a forward, George at six, and if LeBron can just get five, how much does that 2016 championship weigh into everything? I'm not the person to ask you that because, as I said, I don't think LeBron James is any better of a basketball player today than he was a week ago. But if you're saying that you're looking at prime instead of longevity, I mean, a, a guy like LeBron James, and I'm not trying to say he is better than Michael Jordan. I, In fact, I would argue the opposite. I think just Michael was a better basketball player in, in general, and I would rather have him to start a team with than LeBron, even though I'm the biggest LeBron fan there is. I, but I, I longevity, whether you're talking primes, it doesn't matter. LeBron has been at the absolute top of his, his game and the best player in the NBA for – a decade or more? So yeah, well, how do you argue against that? I've been thinking about this. LeBron calmed down the other night, and it said, I'm a prime guy. How good are they in their prime? Is it insane to say that current LeBron is prime LeBron? Is there a chance that 
this right now is the best he has ever been, averaging 10-11 assists, scoring as efficiently as ever. Um, his defense isn't quite the same athleticism level as it once was, but I think there's an argument that if you had five 2020 LeBrons and five 2012 LeBrons, 2020 might actually win. I I think that the biggest argument for LeBron is he better today than he was in 2012. We both agree that was his best season, right? Just statistically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The argument is that the way LeBron thinks the game and the way he analyzes it in the moment and the way he can take any defense or, or any offense and and affect those things. Like, you look at the teams he faced in the playoffs this year, you know, from Portland and the perimeter-dominated Damian Lillard and not having a whole lot else. Obviously, the Lakers were going to win that, and LeBron probably didn't have to expend too much. But then he he goes on in the second round to face a Houston Rockets team with no big men, five outside on the perimeter, and after losing game one, LeBron's able to, to help the defense out and, and break that Houston Rockets team as well and win – four straight games, and then they go into the Nuggets series and another completely different team with the Nuggets where you've got a a point guard and a big man combination of Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, and he shut that one down. They win four games to one as well. And then here in the NBA Finals, you just – the way he thinks the game and is able to take over on both ends of the floor, uh, you mentioned his passing and the way he makes the right play at all times – some people will complain about Game 5 when he kicks it out to Danny Green and Danny Green misses a three that could have won the finals and they you know, they win 4-1 again. That's the perfect play. Why else would you do anything different? Why would you force a shot in a crowd of three guys when you can kick it out to a dude who's got 15 feet of space? I don't care that he missed the shot. I, I don't do this revisionist narrative. I, I think, yeah, you can easily argue that and I would look into it more before actually forming the the entire discussion, but I think you can easily argue that 2020 LeBron James is better than 2012 because of the way his game has expanded. Yeah, and at this point, it's just all about enjoying his career while it lasts. I have a personal fear that LeBron's career is going to go a lot like Kobe's, where any second, Achilles could go out or something could happen, it could be over. So just got to enjoy every second as we move forward in the next season, season after. He's up at 60,000 minutes. Mm-hmm. Only two players have ever played more than that in NBA history. Carl Malone finished at about 62,000. And, and Kareem. Kareem finished at about 63,000. Yeah. So here in probably the next 18 months, probably early, not next season, but the season after, he'll probably become the all-time leader in minutes plays. And that doesn't include his four Olympic runs. Um, obviously, he doesn't have college behind him, which helps a little bit. But he's getting up there in minutes and – I just worry that it could end at any second. Heck, he could end at any second. He could retire tomorrow if he wanted, obviously. So I'm just going to enjoy it while we have it. And congrats to the Lakers. No hard feelings as much as I hate the Lakers. I I expected LeBron to start to fall off this year. I thought having Anthony Davis was going to be a huge boost to the tail end of LeBron's career. And then I watched the way he plays. One, he's revolutionized resting while on the floor. I don't know how he does it, but he's he's able to rest and get everything that he needs while still playing 60 to 70 games a year and playing 35 minutes a game, and it's it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, you mentioned the minutes played in his career. I, I did. I expected him to start to fall off this year, but he's able to save it and turn it on in, in the most necessary moments. Every time... 
they were on the ropes in the playoffs, which wasn't very much. But, you know, you look at game four of the finals against the Heat. When if the Heat win that game, series is tied 2-2, and it has a completely different look. And LeBron is able to put the Lakers on his back. I believe he scored 40 points in that game four. Or maybe it was 43. But he's just, he's incredible. And, yeah, I can't. I can't agree with you more. We just need to, at this point, we, we've got to appreciate everything that we're getting from LeBron because he is, I don't care what you think about this guy. I, I mean, one, I don't know how anybody could be critical of him. Some, somehow, lots of people still are. But besides being an incredible basketball player, one of the two best that I've ever seen in my lifetime, he's, I mean, he's going to go in down in history books as being the most politically active basketball player, mo- probably most politically active athlete of all time. And he's going to go down as being the best and biggest philanthropist as an athlete of all time. Like this guy just gives back over and over and over and he's an incredible person. He's a joy to watch, and we're we're lucky every year that we have him in the NBA to be able to watch him. One more legacy thing with LeBron, and then we can move on. Because I'm not a huge you're a huge LeBron fan. I'm not a huge LeBron fan, but I am a huge St. Vincent St. Mary's 2000 to 2003 team fan. Like I love LeBron's high school team. I follow them all on Twitter. Like I'm a huge LeBron high school nerd. Uh huh. And um, I made I've actually. Drove in just to see where he went to school when I was in Ohio. I like I gotta go see where LeBron went to high school. Anyway, back his junior year of high school. Okay, about a month and a half after he turned 17, they have their first big national game against Oak Hill, which is where Rajon Rondo came from. I think they have 15 players in the NBA right now, and so they're playing Oak Hill, and that was Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo's a senior. LeBron, sorry, yeah, Carmelo was a senior at the time. LeBron was a junior, and they played a game, and it was. College game day went. Jay Billis called it. Like, it was a huge, huge, huge deal. Yeah, I remember this. And the video's been circulating on Twitter today. The opening credits of that thing was <laughs> it shows a picture of Bill Russell and then Wilt and then Oscar and then Kareem and then Michael Jordan and then Shaq and then Kobe. You missed Magic. And Larry Bird. And they're like, and now coming up is LeBron James, who's as good as these guys. They did that to a 17 year old, and he lived up to those expectations. Yeah, it's just, it, that's insane. Yeah, it's and there's a lot nuts. of credit for how quickly LeBron had to mature and become the base of basketball at 17 years old, 16 years old. Uh, somewhere, <laughs> I've still got a copy of Slam Magazine when LeBron, I think it was going into his senior year of high school, but LeBron and Sebastian Telfair were on mm-hmm. the cover of that magazine. And talk about two divergent careers. But. <laughs> no, okay. But the fact that LeBron was able to live up to all of that hype, being compared to some of those guys that you mentioned, all-time greats, he has lived up to it and more every step of the way. Yeah, he's he's had some teams that weren't great, and he's lost some finals, but I feel like LeBron James has carried worse teams to the finals than damn near anybody else in NBA history, and it's just insane that people still sleep on him. All right, one trivia question, we can move on. 2000, 2001-ish. They ranking the class of 2003. LeBron wasn't ranked number one when he was a freshman, sophomore. Do you know who was ranked number one from that high school class? Oh, man. I'm thinking um, – oh, no, I'm thinking the wrong years here. No, I don't know who was ranked number one. And If it wasn't Carmelo or Chris Bosh. 
Kendrick Perkins, baby, was ranked number one over LeBron throughout their middle school and early high school years. And then LeBron kind of broke out his sophomore year, freshman, sophomore year. And then by junior year, obviously, he was the chosen one. But eighth, ninth grade-ish, it was Kendrick Perkins at number one in that draft class. So uh, there's a fun fact for you. With the the garbage that Kendrick Perkins will spout on ESPN sometimes, I'm amazed that I've never heard that fact out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but... As I said, congrats to the Lakers, but let's get back to talking jazz because we want to be celebrating on the streets a year from now. Well, let's, not even. Let's, let's a hit month a, from now. Yeah, I mean, who knows? It could be a year. It could be nine months. It, who knows? But let's hit a couple more things really quick. So uh, Lawrence Frank, Clippers president of Basketball Ops, was voted executive of the year. So that's, that's pretty awesome for Lawrence Frank. I, I noticed you had a, a tweet <sighs> talking about guys who had been awarded as executive of the year and had had the team's head coach fired in the same season. So that's, what, the 2003 Pistons? Yeah, Rick Carlisle and their owner kept getting in fights, and so they got rid of him, hired Larry Brown, and won the championship. And now Rick Carlisle is one of the best coaches in the league. So you get a title, but you lose Rick Carlisle? I don't know. It seems like probably a pretty good trade-off overall. And then you know, move forward 11 years, the 2014 Nuggets, with a, a name a lot of us are familiar with now, Masai Ujiri, the architect of the Raptors championship team. He got that award with George Carl, and Carl was fired. That was after they lost. George Carl won Coach of the Year, Executive of the Year, and then the six-seed Warriors with Mark Jackson as their coach upset him. Okay. And then the Nuggets like, okay, we're tanking. We're, we're taking a step back. And so Masai went to Toronto. They fired George Carl, but that was more of a we're going into tank mode move. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it worked by Masai hiring Brian gone. Shaw. I mean, that was just a fun Nuggets team with Danilo Gallinari and some other guys, but nobody really to build around. So that, that one as well, and then the Doc one, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we'll we'll still wait and see who the Clippers hire to replace Doc Rivers. I I – I feel like you and I kind of disagreed on that when we talked about it last week. I think it's I think it's a good move for the long-term success of the Clippers to to have fired Doc Rivers, but a lot does depend on who they hire to replace him. There's a lot of guys in conversation to do it. Um, I'm I'm inclined to think it's going to be somebody who has little to no experience as an NBA head coach, but who knows out there in LA? It could be anything. It is a good. And now. So, McKay, the last thing I want to talk about in our news and notes section, before we start talking jazz and contracts, we're going to go over the, the CBA. We, we'll hit on the mid-level exception a little bit. We'll do the biannual exception, talk about some of the tax-paying teams and just what a wild market it's going to be for everybody this season. And then we'll talk about Jordan Clarkson and, and Emmanuel Moutier. But before we get into that, we have no idea when next season is going to start. Right now, if you're listening to Michelle Roberts, the uh, Players Union representative, it sounds like it's going to be late January, early February. Donovan Mitchell, I think it was yesterday, was saying, hey, I'm ready to play next month. You've got teams, eight teams like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast that haven't played since early March. So if you push it back to February, they've got 11 months off. I... You said something on Twitter the other day that just triggered me to think this would be a good conversation. I think the NBA is doing this right. I don't see any reason for them to start earlier, but it sounds like you think differently. So share yeah, that with us. I just 
time's ticking. And I worry if you get into January, February, and still, especially if you still want to play 82, then all of a sudden you're ending next season in mid-September to mid-October, and you're right back to the same issues. Um, ratings were down in the league. We could argue about why that is for a thousand different reasons. In reality, it's probably a part of all thousand different reasons. Yeah. And I'm just not sure they want to mess around with that again. And just, my thing is, do you want to try and fix the problem a fourth of the way for the next four years? Or you just want to bite the bullet and try and get back. The other thing, I don't know why they're really set on playing 82 games this year. Obviously, the regular season gets boring to a lot of fans, and nobody cares because in the playoffs, if Giannis loses in the second round, he just gets hammered for it. So why not test a 58-game season where you just play everyone twice or maybe a 66 or something along those lines where you try and shrink it a little bit and just try and get through it and get back to the playoffs where your real money makers are? Now, when we're talking 82 games, I totally agree with you, McCade. I think it's... It's just stupid and arrogant to try and play an 82-game season next year. I, there's, I don't see any benefit to it because if you, if you want to do that, you're cutting out the Olympics from a third of the guys in the league that would participate in the Olympics. And, I, you know, a lot of people love the NBA, but the Olympics are a huge draw worldwide. So to not have a lot of NBA players participating in that, I think, would be more detrimental than not playing an 82-game season. But I think the key to talk about here when we're looking at the season starting in late January, early February, is it's not trying to capture any momentum. It's not trying to avoid the NFL, which is what some people have argued. And you don't want to come back in December and have to compete with the NFL and the playoffs because we already see that that doesn't really work for the NBA anyway. But the key is owners, in order to make money, have to have fans in the stands in their own arenas. Some of these owners that don't own their own arenas, that are are leasing arenas from the cities or from other teams, if they don't have fans in the stands, they have next to no incentive to play at all. So the farther back they can push this to be able to get fans in the stands, whatever that looks like, if it's 15, 20% of capacity, or if you know we, we can get some of this COVID stuff figured out and, and understand how to have 23,000 people under one roof yelling and screaming and, and all of this airflow in the stadium and keep people safe, then that's what the owners want to do. And so by pushing it back to late January, early February, yes, you do sacrifice some things, and I I've got to believe that they're willing to sacrifice games because otherwise none of it makes any sense. But they yeah, have to have fans in the stands. Some people are saying that they're going to play 82, but instead of 50 conference games and 30 on the other side, they're going to play 65 conference games and only 17 on the other side or something like that. And that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, for what it's worth, the NHL, which is usually about two weeks ahead of the NBA um, throughout the entire season, they are still planning to play 82 games, and they're planning to start January 1st. They finish their bubble a week earlier. They they usually start their season a week earlier, all that fun stuff. So they're kind of all along the same lines of January. I really don't see how you can go past tomorrow 13 day. And one of the arguments on the other side, because as you said, fans are important, and that's 100% true, and I get that. People are worried about the Lakers and Heat not getting enough rest. But that's, a, in my opinion, a very zoomed-in view because it's a 30-team league. And so you had eight teams that haven't played since March that are just sitting around. And then you have 14 teams that played about an Olympic schedule in August, the Jazz being one of them, all the teams that missed the playoffs, basically all the teams that missed the playoffs and lost in the first round. 
they basically played an Olympic schedule of 10 to 15 games. And we have players play Olympic schedules basically every summer now at this point in the, in the world. Um, and so do we really need Donovan Mitchell to have three and a half months off after playing 15 games? Probably not. And so the question is, how do you weigh those four teams that really were in the bubble for two and a half months with the 22 teams, 26 teams that were in there for 15 to 20 games? I get it all. It's really complex. We'll see what happens. But I'm not sure it's fair to say, okay, the Lakers need three and a half months off, a normal offseason for a champion's four, and I, you're just letting time slip. I, I in short, really, though, we need to get fans in stands. That is the number one priority. I just I don't think the rest is, is that much of a consideration because if you actually think about it, the NBA Finals normally end in the second week of June. So, so let's say mid-June, and then training camps start – mid to late September. That's three months rest for the teams that participate in the finals. So if we take this and we look like we're, say, say training camp beginning the first week of January, that's still two and a half months of rest. So I just don't think that's a consideration. You mentioned there's 26 other teams that didn't make it to the conference finals, and those teams are going to have three-plus months of rest, and for some of them, a whole lot more than that three months. So... I, I don't think rest is the issue. I think that the only, not the only consideration, I think the main consideration for these teams and the, the owners, because it, it all comes down to money. The NBA doesn't exist without money. None of these professional sports leagues without exist. Without years of my money, right? Well, we, they've got our money, that's for sure. I, I dropped two of my jazz season tickets, but they've still got the money for four of them. So that's... <laughs> You know that's that's a cost that I'm I'm willing to absorb, even if there there aren't games because I love the NBA so much. But the vast majority of people aren't willing to do that, and I think that's what you see with the ratings. You know, if you think about like look at the first round, the the Luka Doncic game winner against the Clippers in was it game three or game four? Imagine that moment in Dallas with fans in the stands. And, and being able to see the reactions from fans. And uh, I listened to the Woj podcast today, and he was talking to Nick Nurse. And Nick Nurse was talking about the Kawhi Leonard game winner against the Sixers last year in the second round, and, or series winner, and how Nick Nurse still watches that replay, and he, he'll watch the crowd to, to find people that he knows. And he's like, oh, yeah, my, my son missed it because he was looking the other way. But, oh, he's only three years old, so I guess we'll forgive him. But... Those moments are so much more impactful for fans when there's people there. Even if it's not me that's there, the game is more fun when fans are there and we can see the reactions from the crowd. As much as it hurts, the Michael Jordan 1998 game winner in Salt Lake, to see the fans behind the basket, people hands on their head, the no, that enhances that moment and that replay when I watch it 22 years later. And so I, I think... The owners know that. They know they have to have fans there for it to be palatable. I, they're, they're already spending the money on salaries to some degree. They may be decreased percentage-wise next year, depending on the amount of games played. But they have to have fans in the stands or people well, just tune out. Even bigger picture than that, maybe this is going down a weird road that I need to look more into, but uh, fans and sports are a huge part of our culture. And they're a huge healing element of our culture. And so a good example is you look at Hurricane Katrina. 
that destroyed New Orleans about 15 years ago, right? Yeah. You want to watch a play where you're just like, holy freaking crap, what just happened? And you want to hear fans go nuts? Go watch the Saints block a punt on Monday Night Football. The Steve Gleason blocked punt, right? Like, you, you want to – Japan got wrecked from a tsunami about 10 years ago. Go watch what winning the Women's World Cup did for, for that country in a uniting moment. These, when we have these big tragic events like this, and I put COVID as a big tra- tragic event, there's something cool about sports that brings everything back together. It doesn't matter at all, but it matters so much in building friendships and culture and love for each other. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of that in the country right now either. And so <laughs> we, it'd be nice to get back to normal and be able to go to a game and give a jazz fan next to me a high five, even if I don't know his name, because Don Mitchell just threw down a dunk. Yeah, I, I mean, and that. you you mentioned some some great moments in the past that show the importance of fans in the stands. I'll tell you, just more recent, yesterday, I, I'm watching, I'm switching back and forth and watching a few different games, and I switched from, I think it was, I think I was watching NFL and switched over to the Braves Dodgers game to see a replay of Freddie Freeman hitting a home run in the first inning, and the first thing I noticed, the absolute first thing was. Oh my God, there are fans out there. And it made the game more fun to hear people cheering and and not just pan the stands and see cardboard cutouts and a random player sitting in the stands. There's like 15,000 people in that stadium and I it changed the environment for me. That game was more fun to watch just because there were fans there, even if it was sparse. I enjoyed yep. it more. And we're getting there. We're getting there with outside games. We gotta figure out how to bring it inside to basketball, um, and we'll get there. There will be another Jazz game in the future, I'm sure. And who's on the court for the Jazz? We know it's gonna be Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, Joe Ingles, probably Mike Conley. But there's some other guys we're not 100% sure if they're gonna be back. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be lot to be talked about when we're we're going into this off season between free agency, the draft. And just so much financial uncertainty for every team in the league that, I mean, really, we're, we're kind of banging our heads against the wall trying to make predictions on contracts and, and what's going to be available and who's going to get what. Thanks for tuning in today. Home Court Press can be found on kbear.com. Just go to kbear.com forward slash home court press. We can also be found on any of your major podcatchers. And remember to listen, share, rate, and review so more people have an opportunity to listen. Lastly, give McCade Pearson a follow on Twitter at McCadep8. That's M-C-C-A-D-E-P-8. And you can find me, Brian Priest, on Twitter at bpriest24. That's B-P-R-E-E-C-E 24. As always, thanks for listening to Home Court Press, and now back to the show. But what else are we here for if we're not going to try and make those predictions and be willing to be wrong once in a while? So let's let's jump into that. McCade, if, if you could for us, uh, to give us a brief reminder of what the mid-level exception is, what teams can offer, and then we'll talk about the biannual exception, uh, look at some of the tax-paying teams just to give an idea of how little money is actually going to be available. Even in a normal off-season, there wasn't going to be very much money available. And now with the uncertainty, it makes it even less. And then we'll wrap up by talking about the Jazz' two biggest free agents, Jordan Clarkson and Emmanuel Moutier. All right, so the MLE, we talked about this a good amount last week, so go listen to that podcast if you're still confused. But in short... You can give a player $10 million if you're a normal NBA team. Uh, those deals can be up to four years. They usually aren't. They're usually two- or three-year deals. 
Um, and you can split it among multiple players. We talked about that last week with like the Heat and Duncan Robinson. But mm-hmm. it's basically just an extra $10 million on top of your salary cap space. If you're a tax-paying team or if you're under the cap, like the 2019 Jazz were an under-the-cap team, then that gets cut to about $5 million and not as many years at Davis, two years, $10 million, for example. Yeah. But normally, four years, $10 million per year, although teams rarely offer the full four years. Players usually don't want the full four years either. So, but yeah, $10 million is a, a, basically a gift card. Um, more interesting is the biannual exception. So this they made in the late 90s, the 50-game season lockout, I believe, is when this started. But this lets a team um, sign a player for about $3.5 million. And the key is it can only be up to two years, but you can only use this exception every other year. And most teams don't use it. A couple famous examples of teams using it, Carl Malone signing with the Lakers was one of the first notable biannual exception signings. And then more recently this year, Markeith Morris signing with the Lakers um, in February was used with a biannual. So a pretty common strategy here is use it if there's a player you think can make an impact or use it in the buyout market in February. Yeah. So most, the, as I said, most teams don't use it, though, especially because you can only use it every other year. So you only want to use it if you know you don't need it the next year. The other catch, which is super nerdy, if you use it, you become hard capped, which means like you cannot, no matter what, go above this limit. And that limit, it's about $6 million above the tax. So it wouldn't make much of a difference for the Jazz if they used it, but in a general sense, it does put a limit on your spending. And that that includes, you can't go over the cap to even sign your own free agents, right? Yeah. Which yeah, normally you could. Cap, you cannot, no matter what, go above that number. It's uh, $6 million above the 2017 cap, and then it adjusts a little bit every year. It's a weird mathematical formula, but it's about $6.2 million above the tax level right now. Well, no, and the way you explain that biannual exception and some of the uh, examples of when that's been used, usually that goes to, like you said, either guys on the buyout market or or veterans during free agency when you're looking to round out your roster and add some depth. Guys who aren't necessarily, you know, they might be on the, you, you could say the back half of their career and the, the tail end, and these are guys that are just looking to get another decent payday and come in and, and help a team as the 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th guy on the roster. A Markeith Morris fancy, is a perfect example. It's a fancy minimum deal, basically. Yep, absolutely. It's, hey, you're a veteran, but we're going to give you a little bit more than a veteran minimum, but we're not going to pay you like you matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to to so, be harsh. But, I mean, it worked out great for the Lakers this year. Morris played a huge role on their team the last few months of the season and in the playoffs and the finals. And so it can be a, a very valuable asset. It's just not something like the MLE. Like, the MLE, you're going to use. Like, unless you're trying to stay under the tax, blah, 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 you're going to use the MLE. The biannual, only about four to five teams use it a year. And so don't expect the Jazz to for sure use it, especially, although they very well could, and they very well could use it into February and March. Quote, unquote, February and March. <laughs> Obviously, we don't know the exact season layout like normal. But um, those are kind of the two big assets teams have. See, now, if we're talking about the Jazz and the biannual, I would much more expect to see them use it in free agency than wait to try and use it during the buyout market because when have the Jazz ever really been a player in the buyout market? It's hard to get guys to come to Salt Lake anyway mid-season unless the Jazz are looking like a great team and a, and a serious championship contender. 
you you see the the buyout guys go to places like LA to play with LeBron or or you know to go to Miami or you know, the the absolute top tier team. So if the for Jazz sure. are going to use it, I don't see them waiting for the buyout market. I see them then, utilizing the, it. The, in one free of the reason you would is for that exact reason is maybe that team only has the minimum to offer, and it's like here we can give you eight hundred thousand dollars. Jazz like okay, well we can give you two and a half million. So you could hopefully maybe use a little financial incentive. Although you're right, it does usually in the buyout market, it doesn't matter much. Yeah, yeah, money but it is a little bit more than the minimum if you get there. Yeah, it's it's an option. But, it's something the Jazz do have at their disposal. But like you said, I I totally agree. Don't plan on the Jazz trying to use this. So we talked about the cap and free agency and how much money teams are going to have to spend this year. You've mentioned it a couple times, but really, there's about six teams in the league that truly have cap space to sign any free agents at more than the the exceptions, right? Yeah, so the Heat have cap space, but they're going to sign Drogic and Crowder to massive one-year deals in hopes of sending them cheaper the year after, and they want to push forward their cap space to next summer. Yep. After that, you basically have the Pistons, if they don't re-sign Christian Wood, the Hornets, the Knicks, the Hawks, and the Suns have some, but not a lot. So there's not a lot of cap space. Bertans, Fred Van Vliet, Christian Wood, those three guys sign, and all of a sudden it's all gone. So Yeah, and as I look at this list, you, know, you mentioned a few of the teams. The Hawks, I, I think, are somebody who could look to go and acquire a high-priced veteran if that person is available this year. The Knicks are somebody, they've got almost $48 million in cap space this season, and Man, I don't even know what to think of the Knicks because they've got uh, an entirely new front office. They've got Thibodeau as as their coach. They have 63 power forwards on the roster. So (laughs) who knows what the Knicks are going to do. But I expect the the Knicks to probably be a pretty big player in free agency, even if it's only on one- or two-year deals. Um, Yeah, a lot of teams will sign massive one-year deals if they can to try and push that mm -hmm. cap space forward to next year when Giannis and maybe Kawhi and Paul George, I think LeBron actually could be a free agent next year as well. Yeah. Compared to this year where it's like, well, technically Anthony Davis is going to opt out of his player option, Ah. but Ah. you know, and other than that, DeMar DeRozan probably opts in Andre Drummond probably opts in. There's literally nobody. As I said, it's probably Fred Van Vliet. Like who's going to get a massive overpay just because he's the only guy out there. Davis Bertans, Christian Wood, Montrez Harrell, maybe like, there's no free agents and there's no money to sign free agents, so don't expect a lot there. I I think your Davis Bertans is the guy when all the dust is settled on free agency. He's gonna get, be a guy we're looking at with a four year, eighty five. I I was gonna say ninety to one hundred and ten million dollar deal, and two years in, a year and a half in, we're gonna be going. What did they do? Same with Fred VanVleet. I think he gets about four for a hundred as well. And I, but I kind of expect Van Vliet to go back to the Raptors, uh, barring something unforeseen, just because of what he's meant to that franchise. And they're 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 a pretty loyal franchise, and so I would expect that to happen. But it's it's going to be so crazy because there's so few teams with money, and that that leads us to the the trade market, where I think the real action is going to happen this year. And you were talking before we got on the air today about how NBA trades typically are less about the players involved than they are about money. Explain that to us. Yeah, so it's a money league. Um, Right now, the money is tied to legit money, although I think in the future, hopefully they go away from financial cap and go to more like a statistical cap. But you have to have cap space to sign players. 
and you have to have cap space at the right time to sign players. As we just said with the Heater, the Heat want Giannis, for example. So they need to make sure they have $35 million in cap space next summer so that they can bring Giannis into their cap. The problem is they already have some money on the books, and if you sign some from this summer, then that overlaps. So that's why you give Drogic and Crowder big deals this year who come off the books next year. Yeah. And trades are a lot of the same way. Regardless of what kind of player uh, Mike Conley is, he's an expiring contract, and that's valuable. Very valuable. Uh, so a guy who, and this is why no contract is untradeable, a guy who might get moved this year if a team really wants to give up an asset but have cap space, Nick Batum is on a one-year $27 million deal to play like 300 minutes for the Hornets. But if a team wants cap space next year, they could trade for Batum. And then all of a sudden, Batum's a free agent. Obviously, they don't bring him back, and then you have that money to sign the Giannis. And so without looking at the players, looking at the finances and when a player becomes a free agent can be really valuable in trades. Yeah, and so then when you're talking about the trades and the financial needs of different teams, you, you want to look at the salary cap situation moving forward. Uh, one team in particular that stands out to me is the Houston Rockets are, based on who they have on their roster right now, are absolutely screwed going forward unless they make one of those moves. You know, a contract like a Nick Batum, yes, you, you set yourself back initially, but you free up some money going forward. You know, if you could do a Nick Batum for Eric Gordon type of a deal or or something like Nick that. Nick Batum, or, Russell Westbrook. Well, yeah, exactly. And you, you open things up. Do the Hornets want three years of Westbrook? Sure. Do the Rockets want to get off that contract and have free cap space next summer? Sure. Sounds yep. crazy on paper, Batum for Westbrook. But when you take the bigger picture of what's actually going on, it's not as crazy as it might seem. Well, and, and then when you look at the Rockets, the way they have set up their roster, their roster was built for Mike D'Antoni, and there's no coach in the league that is going to play the system to that extreme. So, yeah, you look at a, a Nick Batum and Tyler Zeller for Russell Westbrook, and that gives the Rockets a center that, that gives them a little bit more of a traditional lineup, sets them back a hair this year. But, you know, we've already mentioned a few times how difficult the West is going to be. The West is... Thir- easily 13 teams deep in terms of competing for the playoffs, if not 14. And so if you're the Rockets, do you take a step back and and then retool and put yourself in a better position two, three, four years from now? Or do you just you know, duck your head and plow ahead? I think they'd be foolish to plow ahead with the roster they've got. There's so many obvious limitations, but that's why this offseason is going to be insane. And it's so difficult to predict because – we could wake up one day and and see the the Nick Batum for Russell Westbrook Brook trade, and it makes like you said it makes absolutely no sense on paper. But when you look at the contract situation and salary cap needs, it makes all the sense in the world if you're the Houston Rockets. The other way it works is teams will give up assets with a player to make room. So, for example, let's say the Wizards are dying to get off of John Wall's contract. They could give up a first-round pick and John Wall to the Knicks for nothing. For you know, There'd be something coming back in return, obviously, a second-round pick or something. But they could do that specifically because the Knicks have cap space to absorb John Wall, and the Wizards just want to get rid of his contract. So, again, you look at it on paper and you go, why would the Wizards give up a first-round pick and John Wall for literally nothing? But it's because of that contract. Yep. You're trying to build the best group of players under a certain number. Um. And we can get way to that for like six podcasts. But um, <laughs> I know you would. That's in short is you got to look at is the player worth the money they're getting? 
and look at that ratio and try and build the best team off of that. Okay, so Utah Jazz podcast. Let's talk about the Jazz just a little bit at the tail end of this. Two main free agents with the team. Obviously, we know about Jordan Clarkson, and then we've got the third-string point guard, Emmanuel Moutier. So where do you want to start talking about those two? Uh, let's start with Moutier. We talked about him last week. We can be short there. Okay, so Moutier was on a veteran minimum deal this last year. He's got a $1.7 million cap hold. And is he a guy, do you look at bringing him back on that veteran minimum again? Uh, I, I think you and I have kind of discussed this a little bit. I think Moutier is an option, but I think it's a late in free agency option after you, you've you exhausted all other avenues. So you, yep. you look at improving that backup point guard spot in other ways, and then if you don't get it done, you've got a familiarity with, with Moutier, and I think Quinn Snyder's developed some trust with him, and that's a guy you look at bringing back around this time of training camp, not when free agency starts. Yep, it's more of a roster spot cost and a financial cost and bringing Moody back as yep. of right now. So probably not coming back, but if you have a roster spot, more than happy to have him back. Yep, absolutely. So Jordan Other Clarkson. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. I, sorry, I hit my microphone. My mic, I hit the cord. Anyway, Justin Wright, Foreman, Gerald Brantley are free agents. There's nothing really to talk about there. Gerald Brantley will probably be back on a normal NBA contract. Justin Wright, Foreman, back on a two-way contract. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to talk about there? Not really. I, I mean, I, I do hope that the Jazz are able to offer Jarrell Brantley something. I think if they if they don't offer the full mid-level exception to one player in particular, you know, a Derek Favors or somebody like that, I think if they're going to break it up, Jarrell Brantley is the guy who gets part of that mid-level exception money. That's yep. all, really all I had there. And then the big free agent is Jordan Clarkson, which, again, on paper, people look at him and watch him and go, okay, he's a good player, bring him back. But the Jazz have a really weird financial situation because there's this thing called the luxury tax. And when you go over that number, every dollar you spend is actually a dollar fifty. And then once you go over a higher number, every dollar you spend is two dollars. And it just goes up and up and gets more and more expensive. So all of a sudden your hundred and sixty million dollar team is actually three hundred and twenty million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Oklahoma City Thunder who lost to us in the first round of the playoffs. <laughs> um, Good memories. So you want to stay below that tax number because otherwise it's basically a fee. To win a championship, you usually have to be above that number. Um, I think the Lakers are actually not a tax team this year, but they were the first non-tax team to win a title in like 15 years. But the big key here is there's this thing called the repeater tax. So once you've done that so many years in a row, I think it's three out of four years, on that fourth out of five years, they like double your charge basically. So instead of $1.50 on a dollar, it's like two fifty on a dollar, and it gets crazy, crazy, crazy expensive. Yep. And so the Jazz are going to be a tax team with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and their extensions and all that fun stuff. That's a reality, and that's okay. But you don't want to set it off a year early so you face the repeater tax four years from now. Yeah. But the, the key with those, those taxes, the repeater tax and all of that, is you can go into the season as a tax-paying team and then make moves during the season and get underneath that tax apron. So you could look at at a Jazz team and say they've got uh, Mike Connolly under contract next year at $34 million. He's definitely going to opt into that. Yes. They could move that contract midseason if they find the right type of deal. Depending on how the year goes, maybe they decide, hey, it's just not going to happen this year. We can move Connolly, get back an asset, or just get off of that money so that we're not in the repeater tax so 
the Jazz have one of the great things that they they've done to set themselves up for this offseason is they have options. They're not locked into a repeater tax. They're not locked into 100% paying the tax. They could re-sign Jordan Clarkson and still be under the tax depending on what they do in season, right? Yeah, so you draft a fir- your first round pick. You use the MLE and we'll even say you use the biannual all of a sudden, at that point, you have about 9 to $11 million before you hit the tax. Mm-hmm. And so that's about what you're looking at for Jordan Clarkson. And again, you could give him 13 trade Colney for a $31 million player, and boom, you're back under. You could trade Joe Ingles for $10 million, boom, you're back under. Or you if trade somebody, an Ed Davis. Get, on, get off the, the Ed Davis in $5 million. Yep, that's exactly where I was going to go. You get off that Davis contract, boom, you're back under. So there, you, can go, you can even trade Jordan Clarkson if you sign him. Yeah. And that's actually not a bad idea. If you just want to keep the value in that asset, you can sign him and then trade him in six months, and at least you got something for him. So I would expect Clarkson to come back, but I will be keeping a close eye on, A, the figure, and, B, if the Jazz need to make moves later to get back under the tax, because I believe they don't want to be a tax team this year. So I'm going to put you on the spot real quick here. The Jazz were the best offense in the league after they acquired Jordan Clarkson. Is he a guy that they need back to reach their ceiling, or can they replace his production elsewhere on the roster and still be a successful championship contending team? They can replace him, but we talked about this. I think we even had a title for this, that pushing your assets forward when we did our trade. Mm -hmm. That was the title, but that's just so important. Even if you don't want Clarkson to be long-term, sign him and trade him in February, and he'd be okay with that because here's the thing. We just talked about there's no money. Jordan Clarkson's not going to get more than the MLE anywhere. No, not anywhere besides Utah. And so even if he wants $15 million, if the Jazz offer him $12 million, it's basically take the $12 million from Utah or go sign for the MLE somewhere. And there's other good options out there like Derek Favors and Tristan Thompson and yada, 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 where his MLE offer might be from a bad team. So it's, it sucks for him because it's just a bad year to be a free agent. And that gives the Jazz some leverage to offer him $11, $12 million instead of $14, $15, million, $16 million. Yeah, and I think that's the key word right there is leverage. The Jazz, they both have some leverage. The Jazz are able to say, hey, we can offer you more than anybody else is willing to in this market, and we'll give you two years, maybe two years, $24 million, I think would be a pretty fair contract for Jordan Clarkson. And that gives the Jazz the, the option to they bring him back, obviously, but they can still move that contract. That's a small enough deal. And it's right in that range where those deals at 11 to $14 million right dollars People are People talk about mid-range being huge. dead on the court. It's the mid-range of finances that's really dead. Yeah. So those contracts are gigantic in terms of financial flexibility moving forward. And if you're, if you're Jordan Clarkson, you've got leverage in saying that, hey, your team was – the best offensive team in the league after you acquired me. This is what I bring. This is what your offense is looking for. And they need the the ball handling that Jordan Clarkson brings because that's just outside of Clarkson. It's not really available on the free agency market. And, and if it is, it's not somebody the Jazz probably want to bring in. So they've seen him. They, they know that he works with this team. The guys love him. I mean, Joe Ingles glows about a Jordan Clarkson. So I expect them to bring him back but I don't expect Clarkson to be a long-term piece with the Jazz, if that makes any sense. And don't expect the Jazz to force it. If Clarkson says, I want 15 mil, Jazz will say, okay, bye. Mm -hmm. They'll let him walk. Yeah. They they won't force it because, as I said, they're kind of up against that tax number. 
and Jordan Clarkson is not that important of a piece. Yep. You can replace Jordan Clarkson with a minimum guy who can do 80, 90% of what he does. Yep. That being said, you just to give up a neutral asset in Dante and two second round picks. One of them that looks really good because the Spurs are going to suck. Um, anyway, <laughs> so it's just <laughs> you and you your second round them. picks. You love them. Hey, that Boris Diaw trade, man. We got a good second round pick in there and we gave it to the Cavs. No, but <laughs> expect the Jazz to do everything they can to bring back Clarkson without forcing it. Even if they end up trading him in February away or whenever the trade deadline is. I keep saying February, but that's not the trade deadline. Uh, but the point still stands. You want to keep that money in your organization. You want to keep $10 million of value in your organization, even if you don't plan to play Clarkson the second the whole season. So, which obviously isn't the case. So, yeah, expect the Jazz to resign Jordan Clarkson. Somewhere above the MLE to about $12 million would be my guess. And, yeah, I'd expect it to be a two- or three-year deal. But we'll have to wait and see what Dennis Lindsay and the Jazz decide to do. Where can they find you on social media, McCade? At McCade P8, M-C-C-A-D-E-P-8. I have a lot of spreadsheets rolling right now. I call him the fire starter for a reason. He's always putting some wild ideas out there. He upset Twitter two, three days ago by just supposing that maybe – Aaron Baines could be more valuable to the Jazz than Derek Favors. That's a conversation we're going to have in two weeks. We're going to do a Derek Favors-focused podcast. So if you want to hear more about Favors and some of the Jazz options when it comes to him, what he could bring to the team, and if they decided to go another direction, what they might do as a, as a backup big, be sure and tune in two weeks from now. Next week, we're going to do some more free agency talk. We're going to talk about just the free agency market in general. We will each have our own top five realistic free agent options for the Jazz. We can't say Anthony, Anthony Davis, Davis to the Jazz because that's not realistic. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I think he's going back to L.A. Yeah, my yeah, take of the day. You might be onto something with that one. But you can find me on Twitter at bpriest24. That's at B-P-R-E-E-C-E-24. And I'm back, baby. I got it on my phone. I've been participating a little bit. I'm just not getting locked in like I used to do. That's okay. <laughs> and Maybe then, if you could get your football picks right, you could. Wow. Wow. Well, before we go to the football picks... Home Court Press, we love doing this. If you like what you're hearing, you enjoy the show, remember, subscribe, share, rate, and review the show so more people can find it. We love talking Utah Jazz basketball, and we're going to be out there doing our best to be available every Wednesday of the offseason. So Home Court Press, subscribe, share, rate, and review. And with that being said, let's jump right into our NFL picks. McCade, you kind of flipped the script on me a little bit after the uh, dominant performance I put on through the first four weeks of our picks. We were seven and two and two and seven going into this week. You went two and one. I went one and two. So it's coming back. I mean, you've got a chance. <laughs> one step at a time. But uh, yeah, the Jaguars couldn't quite keep the game close enough for me. But I had a pretty good week. Does that mean I get to start off this time? You start it. Take it for us. All right. Monday night, Andy Dalton plus two and a half at home against the Cardinals. Prayers out to uh, Dak. That injury sucks. It looked disgusting. Gordon Hayward ankle-like injury. He should be fine long-term. Broken bones usually heal pretty well. Mm -hmm. But regardless, it sucks for this season. I still trust the Cowboys offense, though, to beat the Cardinals at home. And you're giving me two points just in case the Cardinals win a close one. I'm taking the Cowboys plus two and a half. You know what? I almost took that game. I had it typed up and everything, and then I remembered the Cowboys defense. Uh, So I (laughs) I stayed away because Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins and Larry Fitz still does some things. Christian Kirk. 
that that Cardinals offense is pretty good, and yep, the Cowboys could win by ten. I could also see the Cardinals going out and scoring forty points and putting it on the Cowboys. I, th- I think that's a forty-five forty game. So I stayed away from it. My first pick this week is I'm going to go to a, a team that I had initially picked for an upset on my live show on K-Bear. That's right. I'm a radio DJ as well as a podcaster. I know. Everybody's surprised here. But the Vikings let me down on Sunday night football against the Seahawks. I'm still picking the Vikings. Minus three and a half against the Falcons. The Falcons finally let go of Dan Quinn. But that secondary is atrocious in Atlanta. It's so bad. It's awful. Injuries and just they don't have good players anymore. So I think I think Kirk Cousins can carve up that secondary, and the Falcons are officially in losing for Lawrence territory. Trevor Lawrence out of Clemson, I I think they're looking to replace Matt Ryan. So give me the Vikings I, minus three and a half. I think you're onto something there. Um, got another road favorite. This one's a road favorite. I'm thinking wins by enough to cover the spread. The Ravens have looked better and worse at times, but they're winning games. The Eagles are struggling. Carson Wentz looks terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Yeah. I'm taking the Ravens minus seven and a half up in Philly. You and I are going to fly high or crash and burn on that one together. I also have the Ravens minus seven and a half in Philadelphia. That's a big favorite on the road, but I just didn't love anything. We got to say one problem this week is though they have what? Four teams on by. So there's only 14 games. And three of the games haven't been posted yet because of tonight's game, which you will be last night for mm-hmm. those listening, as well as the Patriots-Broncos game still doesn't have a spread again. So yep. a little a fewer options to choose from. Um, but my final pick is that Patriots-Broncos game. I don't even care what the spread is. I'm assuming it's going to be Patriots between five and eight. I would assume probably seven and a half. But give me the Patriots at home against the Broncos. Hopefully Cam plays and Bill Belichick gets his team coming off an awkward bye, kind of ready to beat the Broncos again. You know, I feel like it's kind of cheating picking a, a game on the spread with a spread <laughs> that's not even there, but I'll give it to you because I know the Broncos are terrible and you're probably going to be right unless that line gets set at about 15. So, <laughs> yeah, I, all right, whatever. But I'm going to take what I feel like is my lock of the week, the Los Angeles Rams beating the 49ers. The Rams are favored by three and a half right now. And last year's NFC Super Bowl representative is a shell of what it was last season. They, they've been decimated by injuries and just bad play. Um, the Rams still healthy. I didn't expect them. I expected them to be good, but they've been even better than I thought they would be. I thought that injuries would hurt them because they didn't have a lot of depth. But they're still healthy, man. They've got great wide receivers and exceptional defense. Honestly, the only thing holding that team back right now is their quarterback, Jared Goff. So give me the Rams, minus three and a half in San Francisco. That's a good one. I couldn't bite on that one just because I still have that mental walk that the Niners are still good. So uh, <laughs> I got rid of that one real early this year. <laughs> we'll see what happens when the Packers play up in San Francisco, Santa Clara, on Thursday Night Football in about three weeks. So. As soon as the, the Niners went to New York against that Giants team and suffered a bunch of big injuries i i was out on the 49ers so eh, who knows you're not taking the packers as road favorites in tampa bay no i was surprised what is it a two and a half point favorite or something Uh, like that one and a half right now one and a half okay yeah Yeah, that one surprised me i I couldn't do it the packers have looked great we're going 19 and 0 baby (sighs) no no i know all right thanks for having
having me on again. We'll be back all off season and then back all throughout the season, and we'll go from there. <laughs> Absolutely. Home Court Press every Wednesday. Check it out. Thanks for tuning in.